I've been a vegan for about two and a half years now. Uh-huh. I had been a vegetarian before. I had gone vegetarian years before. And it always seemed kind of absurd. You stop eating meat. And what you start doing is eating more cheese and eggs uh-huh. to get your protein, quote unquote, because you are still carrying that notion that veganism, by definition, is protein deficient. Uh-huh. And there's so much inculcation of this for food groups right? through education that you're like, oh, I better eat more cheese and eat more eggs and everything. Right. So you end up in this situation where people think, oh, he's a vegetarian, he eats a lot of vegetables. But the truth is you're eating like egg sandwiches made with bagels and all this, not, you know, not only is it not healthier, really, I think sometimes it can actually be worse for you. Right. And you end up supporting a lot of the same industry. Yeah. It's kind of like a Zizek thing where he talks about you buy something and it's promoted as if a certain amount of what you spend goes to help world hunger or something. It goes to do something. Right. Yeah. And it's really just preserving a certain system and you're running this ideology. And underneath it, you suspect that your free range eggs are not really free range. Right. There's that old story that might be apocryphal about going to China to do business. The businessman is trying to get some sunglasses and he gets a contract set up. And during the final negotiations or whatever, he asks, but the sunglasses, they have UV blocking, right? And the Chinese counterpart says, yes, have sticker. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And the thing is, once you start really being honest with yourself, you're like, man, I am totally implicated in this thing. (laughs) And then once you face that you're implicated in it, honestly, it's easy to just go back to fuck. You're like, fuck it, man. Yeah. This is just a game I'm playing with myself. You reminded me of one thing. The way that super industrial farming is set up, even on something, you know, like a, a corn farm or whatever, when they use these giant combines to harvest it, every animal in the field is killed to get those vegetables. Yeah, yeah, there is that problem too. I mean, the general problem, though, of being implicated in direct, deliberate exploitation of livestock, of of chickens, Uh of all these different animals where it's animal agribusiness, it's very easy for you to slip back into just eating meat. You're like, screw it, this is just a charade. So, okay, I'm eating meat again. Yeah. And then you haven't eaten meat in a long time, and then you got to get a taste for it. And you're like, man, yeah, I like eating meat. <laughs> right. You know? And then I remember once I, uh, I'd eaten some lamb, uh-huh. and I came home, and there was a voice in my head, and it said, you have a belly full of sin. Wow. And there was a part of me... That said, oh, that's just my mind playing tricks on me and so forth. Yeah. But there's a, there's another part of me that's like, you know, that's it's kind of true. I, I actually didn't need to eat that. And I'm, act, I'm eating it because I enjoy the taste of it. Right. And it was a, a child animal that had been killed. Right. 
But of course, I had the same issue with the half-heartedness of the vegetarian path. Mm -hmm. So eventually, I was like, screw this. When I started seeing more videos on the internet, uh -huh. and I kind of took it from a William S. Burroughs naked lunch perspective, like his idea of the naked lunch, to actually see what it is mm -hmm. that you're eating. Right. I don't remember the website, but uh, it was like a, I think it was a 22 or 21 day vegan challenge. They said, okay, you know, just try it. Right. And I had a support person that she would email me and I would e email her back. And so they had someone kind of checking up on you and trying to encourage you to continue. And I made it through and then I just kept, I kept on with it. I mean, one of the things that happened is I had felt kind of like, a prisoner. Uh -huh. You know, if you look at it, it had kind of a biblical dimension to it. If you, you look in the Bible where the people are talking about being oppressed by the Romans and wanting to overthrow the tyranny of the Romans and Jesus telling people that they're captives of sin, they're prisoners of their sin. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see the temptations of Jesus when he's fasting in the desert, one is the devil saying, I'll give you dominion over all the kingdoms of the world. Yeah. And there's that feeling like this world system is based on evil. Yeah. And you can't really do anything about it. Right. And that's a feeling, that's a feeling of helplessness, you yeah. know? And there's a kind of resignation that can come with that helplessness. Then the, And then that just goes back to some sort of low-level indulgence where you, in a sense, feel like you're selling your soul for some meager pleasure. But on the other hand, it doesn't really profit you that much to have it because it's impossible to really realize that higher path in this corrupt garbage world we live in, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then so, but it is a state of feeling afflicted. It's feeling like you're trapped. And of course, there's all kinds of levels to it, right? You realize all the corrupt things that have been done by intelligence agencies, the democratic process in various countries uh, has been undermined. And, you know, like once you start becoming aware of the global system and kind of how horrible it is, uh, yeah. you just feel, you feel kind of overwhelmed by it. And you, you feel like there's no way for me to extricate myself from this web yeah. Of evil. Then you decide, uh, actually, I'm going to try. I'm actually going to try to do that. Right. It does lead to a radical transformation. For example, I started getting a lot more musical ideas, a lot more um, melodies were coming to me. Mm -hmm. It's as if something had been blocked, like a channel had been blocked and the channel had been open. Now, of course, you could ask, well, is it the case that there was some sort of a psychic blockage related to this negative practice, negative consumption that you were involved with, and it's almost as if a portal had been opened? Or is it just the power of the idea and no longer being so divided in yourself and then feeling that, that sense of possibility opening up, that things can really be different? You know, there's there's more than one way to look at it, but there was definitely a change. Right. But to get to your point about the animals 
that are harmed in the harvesting of corn, for example, like you were saying. That's true. I mean, there's so much. But all, what I can say about that is it's levels, it's degrees. Right. So people who are eating meat, for example, a lot of, uh, in, in the U.S., a lot of cattle are actually fed with corn. Yeah. And it takes so much more corn to feed those cattle. I forget what the conversion is, but it's something insane about pounds of corn for pounds of meat. Right. Well, you're, you're supporting that many, many times over when you're eating meat. Right. So you have extricated yourself from that system to a certain degree when you go vegan. And it is substantial. It is truly substantial. Right. But it is also correct to say that if you have, if you're following veganism, it does not mean that all that you eat is cruelty free. Right. So that point is taken. I agree with that. So then to me, you know, kind of the next steps that you might, you, you want to take is, well, what else can be done? Yeah. Right. I mean, there could be different methods of agriculture. Right. Isn't it good to start in the right direction? Right. I'm reminded a mutual friend of ours at one point wanted to pick up jogging. So he felt he needed some uh, jogging sneakers, but he didn't want them to come from slave labor. So he and I went on a car trip to various stores. And of course, it was impossible to find you know, a pair of sneakers that wasn't made in China or whatever. And he wouldn't give up. And I mean, we just kept driving all around and I was like, hey, do you know how much gasoline you're using on this wild goose chase? And at that point, he kind of gave up. But of course, with something like vegetarianism or veganism, it's not like there aren't non-slave labor options available. It's a little bit of a different situation there. But I tend to see that pattern a lot where there's a kind of self-defeating approach to protestation. There's a, there's a lot of shooting yourself in the foot in these kinds of situations. I guess that makes it a kind of thin line that you've got to walk. Right. Well, in every situation, <clears throat> you should try to think about all the factors. Right. You can also be eating vegan, but still be creating a ton of plastic garbage. Right. I have one question to ask you. Go ahead. And then I was thinking to kind of outline a little bit of my view on this whole thing. But okay. This isn't meant to pin you down because I think we'll get further and further and more nuanced with this as the conversation goes. But w would you say that your anti-meat eating posture is fully or mostly related to the sort of modern cruel systems that are involved in making that meat? For example, would you be fine or maybe fine with conditions with a situation where animals were eaten, but with as little cruelty as possible? For example, I've heard about this meat farm. I might be mixing the stories up, but we can just take it as a hypothetical situation where the animals are given a preserve size space to, to range and they're fed the, like the things that they actually like to eat rather than 
being like forced to eat whatever is most economically viable or whatever. And well, and so on and so on. And then when it comes time to kill them, they're already old and they've already, you know, had children or whatever. And they're taken out without any idea, you know, that it was going to happen. What do you think about that? Where do you stand? It's a thousand times better than 99% of what actually does happen. Yeah. That's for sure. Of course, you run into problems because it goes back to the idea of free-range eggs. Mm -hmm. You know, is that really what it was uh, like for those animals? Right. You know, like when I was in India, there were definitely people who held cows in high esteem. Uh But I, I mean, I also witnessed people who took pleasures in beating them. Wow. So you have a certain image and you're told that though this is how we do things here this is but then you go there and you you see what really happens right you know i was uh in in the himalayas and there's a tibetan buddhist temple and they were polite to me they gave me butter tea i wasn't vegan yet uh-huh. obviously uh, the butter tea was disgusting by the way but still uh-huh. still nice and i heard this crying it was a dog crying out in in horror and like in pain. There were a bunch of kids gathered around and there was a monk and the kids were laughing. And what he had, he had like these big pair of shears, like garden shears that he was squeezing against the dog's tail like he was going to cut the dog's tail off. And he was squeezing it hard enough that the dog was crying out. Wow. And these were kids and they were all laughing about it and the monk was laughing. I, you know, I yelled at them. And they stopped doing it. I had a couple experiences like that when I was traveling in India and in Nepal, mm-hmm. where it's the last thing you would have expected going on, but that's what was really going on. So I got to be honest, I don't trust people. Right. I mean, if there's anything, I'm more sympathetic to what can be contextualized historically, where it played a role in our survival as the human race. There are probably times in the history of humanity where we only survived because we engaged in fishing or, right. you know, we only survived because we were splitting open zebra femurs as we were crossing the desert or what have you. Right. Or that there are tribal people who live now, maybe in cold climates where their culture is built around hunting and it's not the most realistic thing for them to stop eating meat and ha- to preserve their way of life. Right. But I do think the general trend should be moving towards actual veganism. Uh-huh. At this point in history, it doesn't seem necessary right. for us to be consuming meat. And it's, I think it's basically habit, palate pleasure. At the end of the day, if you're going to put your palate pleasure over the well-being of some other sentient being, you really need to stop and think about that. Yeah. I mean, it's like the Lolita Express, that guy, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, with that plane and these various, these politicians, celebrities and so forth, having sex with underage girls. Right. They got some pleasure out of that. You know, it was at somebody else's expense. Right. And I'm not saying that they're entirely analogous, but there are many situations where people do something and they do it because they get pleasure out of it and someone else is a victim. Right. But, well, they're willing, they're willing to do it because they want to get that pleasure. 
Right. And to me, one word that comes to mind in situations like that is evil. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's tough because you could say, well, life itself is evil. Because life is based on this. Life is, things are always eating each other. They're always consuming, right? Something is consuming. Like everything that is living is being nourished by what has died. So, yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's a tricky thing on the one hand. On the other hand, I consider it a blessing that we as humans who have that moral sense Mm -hmm. are herbivores. In our physiology, I'm not saying that we're we're historically herbivores or that we're not adaptable to being omnivores, but kind of in our ideal state, uh-huh. we really do seem appear to have the design of being herbivores who right. had to, you know, with the potential for functioning as omnivores, but omnivores, but largely through artifice, because mm-hmm. human beings can cook. Human beings can do this and do that. Yeah. Well, if we have this capacity for artifice, why not start doing things in a positive way instead of using that capacity to continue to extract suffering? Right. You know, pleasure from some other being suffering. Right. I prefer the scenario that you described, but I still wouldn't want to eat that meat. And as I said, I'm more sympathetic to a kind of historical context and Mm -hmm. to how some indigenous people may be living. And I actually do think that people who hunt and eat food that they hunt, Mm -hmm. while I don't agree with it, I think what they're doing is morally on a higher level than people who are just consuming animals who spent their whole lives being tortured. Right. That doesn't mean that I support that. I'm saying I see that as having a form of integrity in a, in a, in a, within a certain frame of reference. Right. But again, I think the general trend for humanity should be veganism. Uh, one, I guess, sort of counterpoint that I just like to hear what you have to say on this. It seems like to think of the survival of a species... It seems like an omnivorous species would obviously have the best chances because there wouldn't be any worry of it specializing itself into an evolutionary cul-de-sac in a situation where their main food source dries up and they aren't able to digest any alternatives. What do you think about that? Well, adaptability is key and omnivores are by definition more adaptable. So I would agree with that as far as like how a, a particular species is going to be in changing environments. But the bigger picture that I would want to look at is what the role of the human race on this planet is now. Yeah. Having more power over environments. Yeah. And we're changing environments in negative ways. Right. Based on the idea of being omnivores. Right. So we need to kind of hold ourselves to different standards. Yeah. You know, I meet religious people. And the thing is, is that basically anything that's rooted in the biblical foundation, Uh they would acknowledge this idea of stewardship. 
they're supposed to take care of the environment. They're not actually supposed to abuse animals. Now, I don't agree with animal sacrifice. So, but I still think there's enough there that there is a framework where you could have theological debates between different parties. Mm. But if you point out stewardship and, and you say, look at what we're actually doing to this planet, they would have to concede that we're not living up to the role of stewards. Right. On the other hand, you have some people who might say, well, I don't believe in any of this religion. I don't believe in scripture. I believe in systems theory. I believe in deep ecology and so forth. Well, all the more for them, right? They're going to then say like, well, I'm just going to appeal to you um, in terms of what is best for this ecosystem. Or someone says, well, I'm an atheist. And then you ask them about speciesism. Right. And whether, in other words, what I'm saying is from so many different perspectives, it's, it kind of seems to me that if you really press it, people will have to admit, well, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, it might take on different tones, but, you know, I mean, I think there was a, a, a discussion between Peter Singer and Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins eats meat. Yeah. Peter Singer was saying, I'm, I think I'm being more consistent than you are. I'm really following this. Right. I just feel like within within most contexts where you're trying to construct some kind of a coherent ethical approach, mm. veganism actually makes more sense. I see. Yeah, I'd like to hit on Peter Singer a little bit later. Okay. But just to hit a little bit on where I come from in this, I guess the first thing I should say is that I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian. but that said, I think that, well, if you haven't wrestled with the whole issue of killing animals to eat, then, well, maybe you haven't had a chance to sort of hear the message to step outside yourself, or at least maybe you haven't been exposed to how horrible the uh, factory slaughterhouse system and all that are. On the, the first point about hearing the message, I'd really like to frame the whole thing. I think this is where you were going in a way too, but I'd like to frame it in terms of higher consciousness and a sort of a sort of connecting consciousness. If I'm going to be honest with myself, I'm not sure how long it would have taken me if ever to realize the importance of the earth, our connection to it, our connection to each other everything involved in ecology, etc. if I hadn't taken psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Wikipedia page called Psychedelics and Ecology. And, of course, you know, the, the hippie movement was very much involved in ecological issues, including veganism, vegetarianism, and so on. But the page also discusses people like Stanley Krippner and Paul Stamets and Albert Hoffman himself, who said that the psychedelic experience has an ecological message. And that was backed up in, I think I told you this like a, quite a while back, but there was a research study that they surveyed about 1,500 people about, to quote from the abstract, past experience with classic psychedelic substances 
nature-relatedness, and ecological behavior. And then the abstract says, using structural equation modeling, we found that experience with classic psychedelics uniquely predicted self-reported engagement in pro-environmental behaviors, and that this relationship was statistically explained by people's degree of self-identification with nature. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. As you know, I've been looking into quantitative ecology as a possible pursuit, so I'd have to say the correlation is there. Right. Are you familiar with Stuart Brand? I'm not. Okay. He's someone that basically everyone should know about. Kind of funny to connect it to a past podcast, but he was connected to uh, Douglas Engelbert, who did the mother of all demos, that computer demonstration back in the 50s or 60s, I'm forgetting now, that showed video chat and VR and stuff like that. Stuart Brand had his finger on the pulse for such a long time. He was connected with the Merry Pranksters, Ken Kesey. He formed one of the first online communities. He created the greatly popular Whole Earth Catalog, which was like a paper version of the internet in the 1960s that covered all kinds of things involving ecology. There were ways to order useful tools for communes and stuff like that, but also things like music synthesizers. And it was almost a sort of a crafted internet based on ecological and spiritual issues. But the reason I wanted to bring him up here is because he started a huge campaign to petition NASA to release a photo of what the Earth looked like from space. And he succeeded. And the whole start of that phenomenon of being able to see our planet came from him. And of course, he started that campaign in order for people to feel the connection that they have to the planet that gave birth to them. When was it actually released? He put it on the cover of the Whole Earth Catalog that I had just described in uh, 1968, and that was from a photo that NASA took in 1967. Wow. That, to me, is more of the positive side of the 60s. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that, I mean, he fully embraced technology, and not only embraced it, but advanced it. He created or co-created The Well, which was one of the most famous parts of internet history. That was, I think, from 1985, uh, they started that. It was a huge online community that, I mean, it included all kinds of famous authors and artists and scientists, this sort of intelligent and educated version of the internet. Right, right. So for me personally, it was psychedelics 100% that brought in the ecological message. And not only ter in terms of ecology proper, but of course, these questions about killing to eat and all of that. You can see in the way that boundaries are broken down on, in the psychedelic experience, you know, that you start to self-identify with others. And if you allow that sphere, that moral sphere to expand to animals, then you end up self-identifying with animals. And then, of course, you have to ask yourself if you should be killing them in order to eat. And based 
on what you said, I, I actually want to change the wording here because it's not really killing to eat. I think you're right in saying that it's killing for habit and mouth pleasure. And so to self-identify with another living being and then to, well, I don't think you can really say, okay, I identify with you and now I want to kill you for habit and mouth pleasure. That really doesn't work. No, if anything, it, it reminds me of... I mean, if I if I were to imagine a serial killer for some weird movie, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what that sounds like. <laughs> right. So I would say that there is a fundamental inconsistency when seen from a state of higher being to not being vegan or vegetarian. That's something that I sort of wrestle with myself. I think that because of that, because of the inconsistent nature of the idea that it's basically something that everyone should be wrestling with. And I think acknowledging the inner division and wrestling instead of attacking a vegan person, <laughs> which is what some people do, right? or making arguments that don't really make any sense, I think that that's moving in the right direction. And I try to keep in mind that for most of my life, I have not been vegan. Yeah. But I really do attribute so much that is evil in this world to conditioning. Yeah. Because I know when I was a young child, I was very sensitive about animals. Like I accidentally killed a mole once and I was very, very upset about it. Yeah. And that's not something that it's... To me, a part of it was just reclaiming myself. Right. We get socialized in a lot of negative ways right? where we lose something and we become dehumanized. Right. And the way that it works with the system of conditioning, it's interesting because if you grow up with a pet or, you know, you, you get a pet later when you're an adult, if you're not an asshole, you know, you start learning things from your from your pet and you start seeing uh, its being. Yeah. And you just, it gets so much, you get into a very deep relationship, like with a cat, you know? Yeah. When you really start understanding cats or spending time with cats. Yeah. It changes you. It really changes you. The emotional connection, and it's not one-sided, it's an actual connection that a human being can have with a cat. Um, a lot of people don't understand it, but people that do, it's uh, it's very powerful. Yeah. And I've also had strong feelings of connection uh, with dogs. Yeah. And when you've lived as an expatriate, you start to see things differently. Like when I was in Korea and there were places where people were still eating dog. I mean... I was in a nice part of Korea where people didn't eat dog. Yeah. But, you know, you didn't have to go too far from where we were, where they were still eating dogs. Right. And there was a person, he was Canadian, and he would talk about it a lot, saying how horrible it is. And I absolutely, I, I agree that it's horrible. But I couldn't help but think that from other people's perspectives, what we do to cows and pigs is also horrible. Right. So... You can have that experience of culture shock yeah. and you can be like he was 
which he never went vegan or anything. He never questioned his own culture. He just became racist against Korean people. Right. That's such a common pattern, and it's one that depresses me to almost suicidal depths. Well, I imagine you see it in Japan, right? Yeah, all of the time. Yeah. There's just no turning it inward. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are like that. It's just not what you do. What you're supposed to do is realize that they might not feel that way about dogs, but where we were, they did. So we lived in an area where the kids were telling me we love dogs, right? Yeah. So, you know, that, that there's a shift there. Right. But yeah, we absolutely have to look at what the hell makes it better when you're doing it to a pig. Right. And I haven't really spent time with pigs, but I, I've seen demonstrations of the intelligence of pigs. But that aside, I'm not just going to base it on what I estimate an animal's cognitive capacity to be. Right. But I know it's not hard for me to imagine establishing the same kind of intimate, profound connection with a pig. Yeah. It seems to be um, just circumstances of fate in history. Desmond Morris discussed pacts that we made with dogs and uh, with cats many centuries ago. And by we, basically, he means um, Europeans. Europeans seem to be among a very small group of people that have made pets out of cats and dogs. I don't remember the way that Desmond Morris described it for dogs, but for cats, it was when we started storing agriculture, you know, agricultural products, and we needed rodents eliminated that would wipe out the harvests. So cats were brought in to take out the rodents, and, you know, we would feed them, and then a sort of kinship grew between us and cats. And that basically just historically didn't happen in Asia. So I, I think that's the sort of cultural difference there. Right. I mean, I know that Cats were also held in very high esteem in ancient Egypt. Right. But yeah, that's a good point, that for historical reasons, they didn't create that emotional connection with cats or with dogs, so they don't see them that way. Right. It's really liberating when you start developing a truly global perspective. Right. There's an inevitable sense of higher ethical obligation that comes with that. And also just wanting to, you know, it's like if you're driving in the countryside and you see some cows and you you pull over and you'd like to pet them and, you know, and say, come here, you know, I don't want to hurt you. But you actually are a meat eater, <laughs> you know, or a dairy <laughs> consumer. It's like, well, actually you do. You just don't want to do it yourself. You want to consume it later. <laughs> it's just very different to, to look at some creature and to be able to be more at peace with yourself when you're approaching the animal. Yeah. There's a great video of Artie Lang, and he says something like, what is love? What does love mean? And he's got like this face. He looks like the devil. And he says, I love you. I love steak. Yeah. <laughs> So I'd like to make a philosophical argument, and I'd like to look at this issue from the perspective of John Rawls' Veil of Ignorance. 
Many people are familiar with Kant's idea of the categorical imperative, which has different formulations, but one that's often cited is only act on that maxim which could be willed as universal. And in that sense, when you're acting, it's as if you're saying, in the type of situation I'm in, people should behave like this. Right. And John Rawls' Veil of Ignorance helps you to expand your perspective to really see the bigger picture. Because to think of things from a perspective where they're being universalized, it helps you to imagine truly being in someone else's position. So he argues you should forget what your identity is, what your race is, how talented you are, and think how would you want society to be organized if you didn't know who you are? Yeah. Right? You don't know if you're black, you don't know if you're Hispanic, if you're Jewish, if you're mentally disabled, if you're, you know, the the top 1% uh, intelligence, you have a PhD, you're a janitor, you don't know anything like that. Right. Can't you include the idea that you don't even know what species you are? I see. Imagine for a moment you're a cow. You've just given birth, and very quickly your calf is taken from you. And it's crying for its mother. It's crying for its milk. And they're taking the calf away from you. Maybe it'll be made into a, into veal. There's different destinies, uh, but they're all dark. They're all horrific because other people want to drink your milk. And even when you have a growing vegan population and dairy consumption goes down, they'll milk you anyway, and they'll get uh, payoffs from the government, and then they'll just dump your milk. Just to give an example of a perspective you might want to consider. Now, arguably, that's not really the perspective of the cow because the cow doesn't know all that. So you could look at it just from the perspective of the emotional state of watching your child being taken from you as it cries out. So that that's just, just another way of looking at veganism is Rawls' veil of ignorance. Right. So, well, the first thing that I think of is Peter Singer, right? His book, Animal Liberation. I think a very important book. One of the points that he makes that is kind of similar to the veil of ignorance argument that you're making is that he says basically that we engage in speciesism, you know, with speciesism, you know, we're talking about which ones it's okay to kill for our pleasure and so on. Uh, yeah. So you using the veil of ignorance to say you, you don't even know what species you are means you're thinking of the community of sentient beings, not just the community of human beings. So yeah, I would say that's exactly a way to move past speciesism, just like the veil of ignorance in general, you know, helps you move past I don't know, elitism or racism, classism and so forth. You could expand it to, as as has been dramatized in some good Twilight Zone episode, Uh these space explorers crash land on some planet, and um, one guy says to the other, hey, you know, I got a good feeling that there are beings out there who want to help us and that they're just like us. 
I just, I just know it. I know they're just like us. And then the guy leaves the spaceship and he meets these aliens and they're very nice to him. And then they say, oh yeah, we'll, we'll uh, help you get back home and everything. We'll help you repair your ship. And they create a home for the time being, they tell him, that looks like, you know, his house back on Earth. And they say, yeah, yeah, we just want you to be comfortable. And then he realizes he's locked in there and he opens up the the shades and there are bars in the window and a bunch of people looking at him. And there's basically just like a plaque saying an Earth creature. Right. And he looks out and he says, you were right. They are just like us. Yeah. One argument that I remember reading against Singer's idea of speciesism is that even when we talk about things like veganism or vegetarianism, there is just narcissism behind the choice of which species we you know, decide to include in our moral sphere. That, for example, it's okay to kill cockroaches, but if something you know, looks or acts more like us, like maybe a marsupial and so on, then we'll be okay with protecting that one a little bit. I think one of the the issues to talk about there is that's only taking part of Singer's argument. His basic argument is that if an animal or creature or whatever can suffer, then our moral sphere should extend to them. So there really isn't so much of an arbitrary you know, choice as far as what goes in or outside the moral scope. I, I think that Singer is really on to something there, you know, with the ability to suffer. Of course, with lots of animals, we're actually not sure if they can suffer or do suffer or not. So it's a little bit of a, you know, a messy sort of gray area. Well, you can err on the side of caution. I mean, I've heard fish don't have feelings and then others come out and say, uh, looks like they do. If someone makes an argument for more inclusivity, that's not an argument against expanding inclusivity a little bit more than it was before. Right. You see a video with people torturing cows and laughing or like torturing piglets and dancing around. And someone says, what do you care? You'd kill a cockroach? Yeah. I mean, if someone wants to make that, if that person's a Jane and they say, yeah, I go so far as to, if I can avoid it, I won't kill a cockroach. Uh, it's a little bit more persuasive than someone who laughs something off and then just gorges himself on a, on a hamburger. Right. Where I wanted to bring it is just a little bit into like the modern and future technologies, because when you talk about, you know, something like suffering, we're going to be having to deal with some real future issues that involve questions like what is suffering? True. If I stub my toe, right, it's just signals going around in my body and brain alerting me. What the hell's going on, you know? <laughs> but, um, you know, if you could use CRISPR or whatever to, for example, raise cows without that alert, then what would that ethical situation be? Or is that even a direction that we should go in in the first place? Should we actually be looking at creating meat animals that cannot feel pain? I think that the future is a non-meat-eating future. 
earlier, I had talked about framing this in terms of like a higher and more inclusive consciousness, one where we self-identify with animals and so on. The very idea, right, of just continuing this this weird habit, you know, by genetically manipulating animals to sort of cover up the ethical issues is, um, I think, just sort of exceedingly bizarre. Recently, there was a Kissinger article about artificial intelligence. You know, I mean, screw him or whatever, but it was a really good article. One of the great points that he made in it is that this modern world is basically a polar opposite to the previous one in that in the previous one, we had a sort of overall guiding philosophy that we had to apply to the unknown of technological and other advances. But now we have all these technological advances happening with no known guiding philosophy. So through those technological advances, there may just be so many different evolutions of things that we're, you know, we've just never even asked the ethical or spiritual questions about them. But so if we think about self-identification with animals, you know, would we really, like, for example, want to make ourselves into beings who cannot feel pain? And then there are all kinds of, you know, questions to follow that up with, you know, what are we? In what way does suffering identify us? Does suffering allow for its transcendence or just transcendence, period? Where would we be without suffering and so on? There's all sorts of right philosophical implications for all of this. But I think that the only sort of technological cure, if you want to call it that, is that I think, you know, while we're still in the habit of meat eating, if there are technologies that allow for things like, you know, laboratory meat to be made, or for, for example, vegetables to be engineered to taste exactly like meat or something, that would be a kind of interesting and good stopgap. So, um, with respect to the lab grown meat, so they're pioneering that, right? So that's definitely in our future. And I've never tried jackfruit, but people say that jackfruit tastes very much like meat and they've served it to people who didn't realize it and they thought it was meat. Hmm. Yeah. I've heard about things like the impossible burger that like, it's like getting closer and closer to an actual meat burger. Yeah. But there, there will be problems with that, too, because people might get paranoid and maybe sometimes justifiably so when they actually will be eating meat. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Right. So that's that's uh, a possibility. But I definitely think that there's a lot of development on that front. And the other point is, it's interesting, the point you made about what Kissinger said, because I posted a quote from Kissinger. Mm-hmm. on my Facebook page. And I, and I thought, God, I'm, I'm quoting Henry Kissinger. It's ridiculous. I'm posting. <laughs> but it was basically just Kissinger talking about Kant. Right. And it's funny because when you were talking about considering it from the perspective, well, you know, how would we feel about genetically engineering humans so that they don't feel pain? That was a way of using the categorical imperative. So we still do have something, you know, something like the categorical imperative is kind of our default higher ethical consideration. So we have that general principle. And then also take the Kantian idea of 
human beings as ends in themselves. Yeah. Well, if we're expanding that to include all sentient beings, then the idea of us meddling with animals' genes so that they can serve specific purposes for us, yeah. it highlights the, the problem with that. Yeah, absolutely. The other point I wanted to make is that with respect to how technology changes the conversation, also refines the conversation, you still have the issue of Wilbur's quadrants, and you still have the fact that whatever scientific equipment we use and however we interpret the responses of an animal, the actions, the gestures, the expressions, uh -huh. the, that doesn't all add up to the actual subjective experience of the animal, right? right? So the animal has its upper left-hand quadrant, the actual experience of being that animal. And that right. to me goes back to the idea of treating other sentient beings as ends in themselves. It's interesting when you, the, uh, the film AI, it brings up that issue with respect to artificial intelligence. Yeah. The boy was only serving a certain function for the mother, but he wasn't an end in himself. Right. And you see the, the monstrousness of that. Yeah. One thing that I want to bring up, I've talked to a few Japanese people about vegetarianism and related ideas. They've all basically given me the same response, which is that, yeah, lots of non-Japanese become vegetarian, but the Japanese simply believe that life feeds on life and that's the way it is. I think it's kind of interesting to bring that up because, for example, I knew a person that was vegetarian and um, had all sorts of books about uh, like recipe books, like this is the traditional Japanese vegetarian recipe book when really there isn't a vegetarian culture in Japan, except, of course, for some of the Buddhist sects and, you know, the, the monks, you know, some of them do follow vegetarianism. Some don't. But yeah, I mean, basically overall in Japanese culture, um, especially as it is at present, there isn't that sort of, there isn't a real vegetarian movement here. But the, the way that they've said it to me, you know, that life feeds on life. What's interesting to me about that formulation is that it's exactly the same formulation that Joseph Campbell used to describe the horrible aspect of Kali, that her terrifying aspect is, of course, the true fact of life, that life feeds on life. But what's interesting there, of course, is that Kali has dual aspects. You know, she is also the mother of the world. So maybe you could say like how Alfred North Whitehead in The Function of Reason, you know, he described the two tendencies of nature or the universe of basically entropy and a coming together into greater and greater being. And well, that's sort of putting it in like, Wilbur's terms, but things fall apart. But at the same time, everything is sort of coalescing, you know, atoms are forming mon molecules that are forming. In the end result, you get people and ideas and all that. But anyway, the answer that life feeds on life is a kind of dark answer, you know, one that knowingly or unknowingly avoids the other half, the light. And the light is that really, I think we can 
grow into a culture where we take into account not just life, but suffering and all the things life entails. And, you know, Whitehead himself said we should aim upward. We should aim not towards the basic life feeds on life, endlessly reproducing pointless, ridiculous absurdity, but rather we should see the positive aspects of not only our lives, but the lives of others, including animals and maybe even plants. Maybe see the divinity in all of it and find a way of really dealing with this move into the future from the present to be more in touch with every moment relating to and with the world relating to and really feeling the violence we do, the suffering we cause, all of that. You mentioned the the Kalahari tribes and they're a pretty good model, you know, they kill to eat, but they actually sort of give a shit about the animal. But I think even then that the future is going to be in a different direction. Right. I mean, this idea that life feeds on life, that is true. And another way of putting it is that life feeds on death. Right. And if you're a lion, you really have no choice but to kill. Right. But human beings have a choice. Right. And another issue with this idea of life feeding on life is that what you're describing, the type of change that we need, if that doesn't happen, then it's not going to be us feeding on anything because we're not going to be here. We cannot actually continue on this path. I couldn't help but think about the fact that Japan is an island, and I could see that logic growing out of being a civilization that's probably sustained itself for a long time on fishing. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely some certain peculiarities. I mean, even now, I think the food self-sufficiency of Japan is something like 30%. In a lot of ways, they've had to take on more of the sort of meat-eating cultures of other countries. But Japan has actually been a very food-poor country. There's a lot of things that they make that are just like, you, you find some like giant bitter poisonous root that you dig like six feet down in the earth to uncover. And then you soak it for three days to get rid of the bitterness and the poison, and then you eat it, and it's just a bland nonsense, you know? <laughs> they've, they, they've, you know, made all kinds of meals out of food like that because there isn't much here. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, you know, the sort of geographical, historical legacy of the island, they've had to turn to, especially, like you said, fishing and whatever they could basically get their hands on to survive. There's even in Nagano, there's there's a culture there that takes the, uh, I believe, the uh, the Amanita mushrooms, the, the red and white ones, and they put it through the same process. They just soak it forever to take all of the, the psychedelic and whatever compounds out of it and then eat it as a regular mushroom. It's like there's just been a kind of, I think, a sort of historical never-ending hunt for things that you can actually eat on this island. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, when you mentioned the Amanita Muscari, I was thinking, uh-huh. I was <laughs> thinking of <laughs> Siberian shaman and their flying reindeer. You know, it's yeah, yeah. A hallucinatory Santa Claus. <laughs> okay, so one interesting thing that Terrence McKenna said, and I guess to some people, this might sound like a sort of long polemic about why I'm not vegan, but 
I think it'll be interesting. Terrence McKenna said this thing that stuck with me. I had brought up how the idea of veganism or vegetarianism came to me through the psychedelic experience. And when McKenna was talking about what you're supposed to do in life with the psychedelic experience, you know, with the things, the ideas and such that you bring back from mystical or peak experiences, you know, that's a big problem. I kind of suffered for a long time in my youth to try to come to grips with how mundane life and super mundane fit together. Okay. So his basic idea was that you can take it as far as you want. He said something like, you know, you could be out in the mountains and you and some Swami are the only two people in the world who can understand each other. You could go the whole way. Basically you could work to try, try to truly repeat Jesus, but nothing really tells you that you have to go that far. If you're taking judo classes, you know, you could be the next Olympic gold medalist, but can you give up everything else in your life and do that? Or do you just want it for a hobby and learn self-defense and that kind of thing? You know, of course, there are times when you feel like you're letting yourself down by not going as far as you can, but then you just end up beating yourself up and that's of no use to anyone. So taking that idea and applying it to something like vegetarianism, you know, you brought up Jainism, where people spend their lives picking the insects out of the rice they're going to eat and sweeping the ground in front of them so they don't step on and kill any bugs. And there are really not that many people who are going to be able to go that far. For us, we'd have to basically give up our entire, you know, modern lifestyle. I mean, if you work a nine to five job and it takes you four hours to get out the door. <laughs> right. So, so anyway, basically that's sort of the idea, you know, there's this spectrum and it's not only about how far you want to take it, but in which direction, because some people, they might devote themselves to ending oil spills for once and for all, or for, you know, teaching people about the earth and our connection to it, or it could even be just something of completely, you know, lesser amplitude, like driving more efficiently and that sort of thing. Well, I definitely see the point. You know, it's a question of how far you want to take it. But I think there's a little bit of difference if you go with, for example, the judo analogy. Uh Do I want to become like a world champion in judo or do some judo and, you know, reap the benefits? Uh, I feel like whether or not I become a world champion or I just, you know, reap some benefits in my own little sphere that doesn't really make a difference to the world in terms of suffering. Now, the other examples you gave, I think, can, for sure, if something can be done to lessen oil spills. You know, but there's a saying among vegans, and I think there might be some truth to it, that you really can't be an ecological activist and not be a vegan. Now, I'm willing to concede that if a person did make some major accomplishment, in that sphere that might actually have more impact than whether or not that person went vegan. Uh But you're still dealing with the problem of being a person who is trying to change policy, like trying to enact something on a macro level Uh where what they do in their daily lives doesn't really show the same commitment in terms of what they do individually. I mean, it's Uh kind of like the classic case of someone who's seeking 
some sort of political reform and they they speak of love, but every individual who knows that person finds them to be incredibly obnoxious and not really polite or considerate and somehow lacking humanity. And I feel like what you eat is so fundamental. It's like such a fundamental part of who you are. It's like when Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell were talking about ritual and Joseph Campbell made the point, well, look at the things that you do. How how do you treat those things like sex and eating? The idea that you're trying to change the world in a positive way, and, and specifically through some sort of ecological action. And yet at the same time, you're just, you're still feeding that kind of negative consumption machine. I think a lot of people would find that problematic. And I think they'd be standing on pretty solid ground. I can definitely see the point, but it almost feels like a sort of platonic ideal to me. I mean, the way that I see it, we're all fallible. And I mean, to take meat eating, for example, I mean, we're all pretty much brought up that that is the norm. And so you have to make a a crazy break with the life that you know, in order to you know, to to go into vegetarianism or veganism. And that might be a break that is simpler or more difficult depending on the person. And for some people that might just be too difficult a thing to pull off, while they could be, you know, obviously on other fronts doing incredible good. And you can call a person like that out as a hypocrite, And someone could certainly do that, you know, to me, because here I am non-vegan and, you know, basically telling the future should be a meat-free future and so on. But it's almost like arguing, you know, that you have to take it all the way. What McKenna said really resonates with me, that, that that's simply not so. And you, well, like I said, I mean, in the spectrum, right, you could be taking it all the way like Jesus or just part of the way. But also for different people, the directions will be different. And so, as we discussed earlier, there's there's an inconsistency. Being a meat eater is a sort of inconsistent position. But I don't see that as a reason to point at someone and just say, you know, that person is not doing good or that person is not going in the right direction. It, it just feels a little bit too sort of burning more bridges than you would need to. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's a solid point. You can certainly say something like less meat consumption is better than massive meat consumption. Yeah. You know, no meat consumption is better than just less meat consumption. Yeah. So when you're speaking to people, if you if you advocate and say, you know what, just try cutting down the meat a little bit and see... If you really do feel weaker, you know, I definitely think there's something to looking at what the effects will be. Uh And there's something to the politics of it. Part of what you're touching on is this idea that many vegan people have, which is they were interested in spirituality. And they came to the conclusion that there was some kind of inconsistency in how deeply they were implicated in the system of uh, subjugation and abuse and consumption. Uh And that they look at people, once they go vegan, they look at people who are are not vegan as basically not actually 
being spiritual at all. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there's like there's the one side that if you tell someone you're vegan or vegetarian, you know, the you know, the first thing that'll come out of their mouth is jokes about being homosexual or whatever, you know. Right. Just completely ludicrous. And on the other side, there are a lot of vegans, I think, that is kind of like, you know, this the straight edge movement. Yeah. There are like a lot of people that are like, you know, they were proud about not taking any drugs or that sort of thing. But a certain segment of, you know, the straight edge population would physically attack people that they saw like drinking or doing drugs. Right. There's a kind of opportunity to go extreme to the point of absurd, you know, on either side of the argument. Well, it's similar to maybe when someone is born again. And they basically look at people who are not born again and mm. any kind of epiphany. Maybe that person had anything that that person says about some insight in Buddhism. It's all either just garbage or it's just, <laughs> uh, you know, satanic or, or, or something <laughs> like that. Right. Sure. I mean, there's there's a version of that, I think, with anything. I guess the only point that I want to make to distinguish is that whether or not there's a victim. Yeah. So straight edge people say, oh, you know, don't use drugs. I guess they don't have sex unless they're married or what's the what's their attitude towards sex? Yeah, I'm not really sure. You know, someone goes off and eats mushrooms and some lunatic attacks them. The person who was eating the mushrooms wasn't hurting anyone. Yeah. And then if they're mad at people who are having sex, unless it's in the context that they want it to happen, well, those people who are having sex weren't hurting anybody. Right. You know, but when we support the industries of animal exploitation, we actually are hurting someone. So I, that's just, I do want to make that distinction because I think it, it, it does matter. Yeah. Yeah. Drinking's a little bit different because drinking can end up hurting people through, for example, drunk driving, right. accidents, and I haven't really looked that deeply into it, but I'm sure there's a connection between domestic violence and, and drinking. But those are, again, that's something that may lead to, but it's not necessarily going to lead to that. Right, right. Whereas consumption of animal products is always supporting something and there's no question about it. Yeah. Well, what you said earlier, it, it seems true that eating less meat is better than eating more meat and so on in that whole spectrum thing. I wanted to relate that to me personally and, you know, the life that I've led since coming to Japan. Going back to when I was in school and I guess still growing and probably eating a lot more. But, I mean, my memory is that meat was the the main part of a meal and it was actually an incredible amount i mean i remember sitting down to dinner maybe once a week and eating like six chicken breasts you know and (laughs) chasing you know chasing it down with a little bread or a little pasta or something but you know i mean that was my american diet but then coming to japan like i said there really isn't much of a vegetarian or vegan movement here and it's difficult to get food at restaurants that doesn't have meat in it. But very importantly, on the other hand, the amount of meat eaten is typically very small. 
the main dish is not meat, but plain white rice. And the other foods are basically side dishes of flavor to add to the to the main you know, sort of filler upper, you know, like if you ask a Japanese person what the the best part of any meal is, they're just going to say the white rice. It's, it's something almost kind of unfathomable to people not born into that culture. Meat is basically just a side dish or a taste enhancer for the most part. So after I came here, you could say my cruelty footprint decreased probably by a factor of five or even 10. You know, you could go out here and get like a vegetable soup or something and of course the broth is made with bones you're basically going to get something like that like a soup that was made from a bone or maybe like a a sprinkling of pork on top of tofu or something well a good comparison i guess would be steak some like popular new steak in the u.s is like a 40 ounce t-bone or something like that whereas the standard steak sizes in japan are i think something like three or five ounces so just overall when you when you come here and unless you you know are an idiot and eating three meals a day at mcdonald's or something you just sort of naturally end up eating far less meat here one thing that you also notice about the u.s is how picky and fussy and baby like americans are about their food that results in two or three parts of an animal will be eaten and everything else is thrown out. That's a really kind of wasteful uh, approach to things. Whereas in Japan, pretty much every part of the animal is eaten. Another thing that I wanted to bring up, and I know you expressed mistrust or, or distrust about this, but when I lived in the States, just the smell of eggs turned me off and I, I couldn't even eat them. And then when I came here, I just ended up in a position where I had to eat eggs. This is another point that I'd like to get your thought on, but I don't really see a problem with it as long as, you know, the way that you're you're getting the eggs is is not through one of those crazy chicken farms where, you know, they just stuff the animal into it like a tiny coop where you can't even call it a coop. It's like a chicken-sized cage for a chicken, you know, where they can't move and it's just completely horrible. But if the industry isn't run like that, I don't really see a problem with eating eggs. There's the propaganda, I forgot who did it, maybe PETA, that eggs are chicken abortions, but, you know, that's just not true. And there's a lot of nutrition that can be had by eating them. So, yeah, just let me pause there and see what you have to say about that. Okay, so there's a couple of points. One is going back to what you said before about these giant portions. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely part of the American ethos in general. But I've been noticing it being promoted a lot more on the internet now, and I can't help but feel that it's actually partially response to the vegan movement. Mm. The idea basically being that if I don't buy steak, but they get someone else to buy twice as much steak that it doesn't really matter that I don't buy steak. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. So I do feel like that just because lately I've just been noticing these absolutely obscene, grotesque promotions of almost like there's something heroic in an act of gluttonous consumption of meat. Like, can you take the challenge of eating this giant quantity of (laughs) right so i'm not sure but i get the impression that part of it is 
them trying to keep the consumption up by just amplifying the consumption of those who are not vegan. Because I do think that the effect of vegan buying choices is being felt Mm. by these different animal exploitation markets. Uh, So with respect to the issue with eggs, I mean, before I went vegan, I was consuming quote-unquote free-range eggs. Uh-huh. Until I basically became convinced that it was just a labeling gimmick. Right. And that a, a free-range farm was not necessarily a free-range farm. Right. These labels can be bought. I do kind of appreciate the distinction between someone who doesn't abuse a chicken and the chicken lays eggs and they eat the eggs. If you want to say that's a type of symbiosis between the person who has the chicken and takes care of the chicken and the chicken's giving that person, you know, something that I'm going to eat the eggs. Right. For me, it's kind of a tricky thing because it's like it becomes a slippery slope issue. Uh But I definitely see the difference. Right. I mean, it's definitely (laughs) better. Right. This isn't like fanaticism. So I definitely see the difference. One issue I have is not just how free range is often simply a bought label, but it's also that, you know, sometimes chickens that are even treated a little bit better, they get used up to the point that, okay, they're not really productive anymore for laying eggs. Uh And then they just still send them off to be slaughtered Uh or they slaughter them themselves and it just becomes someone's chicken dinner. Right. And I wouldn't want to support that. Right. But I definitely agree that it's better to consume those eggs. And it's not hard for me to imagine a scenario where I knew every box got checked off and someone was like, eat the egg. (laughs) This really isn't that bad. But there's kind of a slippery slope issue for me where it's like, well, you know, how many exceptions will I start making? Right. But the difference is clear to me. Yeah. Yeah, to just make that a sort of quick point, uh, the like the smell of eggs in the U.S. turned me off, and then I ate them in Japan, and they were delicious. The U.S. eggs tend to have a pale yellow yolk that seems almost like a kind of result of sickness, and the Japanese eggs are a very dark, bright orange, and they're a, it's just a much different texture. It feels like that it's coming from healthier chickens. And when I investigated, that was basically it. You know, the Japanese farmers were treating their chickens right. And that was, you know, creating eggs that were more delicious for whatever reason. So and as far as the, the way the system works here, like when I go to the supermarket to buy eggs, the egg cartons typically have a photo of the farmer whose farm it came from. And there's like a sort of description of what the egg farmer prides himself or herself on and, you know, what the chickens eat and so on. So you could basically say that that's just advertising. But at the same time, I think you could go and visit the farms and, you know, find out one way or the other. It just it seems to me like it's on the level. 
So for me, at least in Japan, with the way things are done here, I don't have that much of a problem with eating eggs. And then this is a much more contentious thing, of course, but, you know, the meat industry in Japan also works much more differently. I searched around a little bit online before we uh, started this podcast. On the Mie Prefecture official city webpage, they discuss their farms and the free-range cows. And this is pretty much common knowledge. When you actually buy Japanese beef, for example, the cows are free range. They're massaged daily and fed beer and private rooms for eat and sleep. They have electric fans for days when it's warm. Like on the city webpage, you see pictures of the farmers taking the cows on walks and stuff like that. So at that level, at least, it's it's much different from the American system. Much less cruelty, I would say. And a lot of those details, you know, it's not just about being, you know, perfectly kind. When the cows are fed beer, part of it is because it helps with appetite. Massages reduce stress, which creates tastier meat, etc. On the other hand, there's a Japanese way of killing fish that is part socially conscious, I guess you could say, and part based on the idea that stressed animals taste worse and may be less nutritious or more toxic. The method of killing the fish is basically, you know, just that it, it comes out of the blue and is as quick and I guess cruelty free as possible, you could say. That's basically applied a across the industry. So I guess you could say in a way, Japan almost goes as far as you can take it while still eating meat. It's not my point to argue that that is the direction that we should go in or that that is super great or anything like that. But if we're going to look at things in a spectrum like that, I think it's important to look at Japan for maybe people to see that there are ways to do this that aren't like the kinds of Texas Chainsaw Massacre videos that you see, you know, about the U.S. meat industry. Right. Well, I agree that things should be looked at on a spectrum. I can say that I feel very good about the decision of going vegan, and I do think that it's the most ethical diet. As far as seafood goes... Uh -huh. If we don't change a number of conditions, uh -huh. I don't think there's going to be much of a future for seafood mm -hmm. because I don't think there's going to be much future for the ocean Yeah, as a source of fish. And if there really isn't that much future for the ocean as a source of fish, I don't know if there's much of a future for humanity either. <laughs> I think it's very easy for people to lose sight of just how grave this situation is yeah that's kind of why i feel a more radical move actually makes sense uh -huh. because that's how precarious our future is right i've been vegan for over two years now but sometimes when when i'm uh stacking up the plastic <laughs> and i look at it and i'm like you know i'm thinking yes i think it's better that i'm vegan but I'm still producing all this damn plastic, you know, not producing it, but I'm participating in this system that uses all this plastic. Yeah. I guess in that sense, I'm thinking about, well, what's the next thing that I can do? Right. So on the one hand, I want to look at everything on a spectrum and try to be constructive and try to encourage people 
to move in the right direction and that every every little move towards what is more positive is an improvement. Yeah. But I'm also concerned with the idea of incrementalism uh-huh. in general, just because of how dire our situation is. Right. And I think that has to do with how we think about ecology and the world in general. Yeah. There has to be a higher level ecological consciousness and just a consciousness of how interdependent we all are. Uh And there has to be a recognition of the sentience of other beings on this planet. Right. You know, it's very easy to kind of fall into the somnambulistic hallway of your daily routine. (laughs) You have your kind of local equilibrium. Right. For some people, it's settled because they say, well, Jesus is going to come back. (laughs) For other people, it's some other religious explanation, you know. And I don't even mean to uh, denigrate that. There's people who have feelings about a messianic age or what have you. Some of those people might be incredible stewards or trying to promote something very positive. Right. But, I mean, there's all these different ways we maintain our reality tunnels and these bubbles that we live in, but we can't live in a world with a completely decimated, poisoned ocean. They keep fishing, bringing up stranger and stranger fish. They're going deeper and deeper. They're using up all these other fish. And then these more exotic fish, they're not even having a chance to mature to help to bring forth the next generation. Yeah. The flesh is all contaminated anyway. That's another thing you ought to think about. Yeah. I mean, the ocean is being poisoned. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of this idea of, you know, whatever you do to the web of life, you do to yourself. It's not like we live in a vacuum. (laughs) Right. That's why I have a little bit of an issue with incrementalism. But absolutely, you should have a nuanced understanding of things. You know, you've got to try to bring people over to your side and not just make people feel like you're condemning them right but look it could be that this is it this is kind of the end of the road for the human race i don't know but if if we continue on the path as it is now i basically think that it's doom yeah it really is doom yeah those are basically my thoughts on that and i'm just like within my own personal life there's a piece that comes with being vegan right where I'm I'm more at peace with myself when I see a cow or some other, you know, some other animal. And it's like, I feel like it's almost like having been baptized. Yeah. It's that I'm not out to get you. And I'm not also, I'm not supporting bad things that happen to you. And I just turn away and I don't have to deal with it. Right. The human being is almost always fragmented. Yeah. And one of the reasons we're fragmented is because of a feeling of moral inconsistency. Right. Right? We experience this all the time. So anything that brings more unity to our own being mm-hmm. is just for our own well-being is is better for us. Yeah. But then you also get that sense of as your being is becoming more whole. Yeah. That you actually want to relate to the world more and see it being more whole. Right. You don't want to see a diseased world. You don't want to see the world being poisoned. 
And that is what's happening. So you make a, a good and interesting point with incrementalism. I'd like to add a little to that. You're talking about our situation being sort of precarious and dire. We can take that position as correct, but we're basically talking about evil. And when you talk about incrementality and evil, it becomes, you know, ridiculous. Like if I have a friend and he's raping his son and I find out about it and I say, hey, rape him fewer times, it's completely ludicrous. Yeah. But one of the things that I've been trying to say is that we're all in this bigger sort of ludicrous situation and it problematizes, especially like militant vegan positions where non-vegans are in an inconsistent or hypocritical position. What I want to say is we're part of this crazy world with all of the mistakes and that it makes and all of the corrupt systems. And even if we just pay our taxes, we fund wars that kill thousands or millions of other humans. You know, when we drive, we pollute the earth. You mentioned all the fucking plastic that we have to deal with, right? And then people are buying products made from slave labor and smartphones that require coltan and other resources for which people are mass killing each other in the Congo. It's kind of hard to know exactly where the, you know, the sort of main ethical stage is in all of this. Even when you talk about food, even if you're a vegan, when you buy vegetables at the supermarket, you're supporting the agriculture industry whose main purpose is to feed the animals that we kill. And, you know, the the modern technologized agriculture industry, like I said before, kills thousands of animals during harvest. Animals that it seems obvious can suffer. And recently, I've learned that in the U.S., a huge problem is with just these masses of wild pigs that eat the crops. So... The industry is just basically shooting pigs by the hundred or thousand to keep the vegetable and grain farms going. So, of course, veganism is an ethical diet, but the most ethical diet would be something that's impossible in this sort of crazy world. So, I mean, that really just gets back to, I think, you know, that veganism itself is on the this spectrum, not only a spectrum, but it's just sort of one stage of uh, the various stages of ethical concern that we have. Well, is that a way of saying that we can put our emphasis elsewhere and maybe that's just as valuable of a contribution? Or is it a way of saying becoming a vegan is only the beginning? Well, I'm not sure about beginning, but it's one of the sort of pieces of the ethical puzzle. I feel like there are so many things that you can point to in the world and make a point about them and bemoan the fact that it's out of our hands and say, if only politicians would do this, or if only there weren't predatory high finance or structural adjustment programs used to rip off third world countries or, you know, talking about minerals used uh, for high tech coming from Africa and how that system is actually part of what perpetuates violence. And you gave the example of Congo. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I can't uh, refute any of that. 
I'm just not sure how you actually tackle any of that. I mean, if you, you, you could try to tackle it. Uh-huh. But I feel like a lot of things that we take positions against, it's as if it's like a series of photos. And I'm going to pose for this photo and say, I'm against this and I'm against that. And it doesn't really amount to anything. But at least in terms of what I choose to eat, it's a lived reality. Uh Like Noam Chomsky said, if you condemn an atrocity, that in itself is not a moral act. Right. So all the things that you're pointing to, I would agree with, uh, they're serious problems. And we do have so many problems, it kind of can look like this whirlwind of inhumanity, and that could lead some people almost to a kind of nihilism where they say, ah, it's hopeless anyway, I think I'll just go order some prime rib (laughs) and um, try to see as much of the world as possible before it's completely destroyed and don't even bother trying to, to change things because it's impossible. Right. I mean, I think every effort counts. Right. And I was on a train through Switzerland, and there was this really very funny man. I think he was from Taiwan. And I was actually criticizing the U.S. And he said, it's easy to criticize. It's difficult to improve. Yeah. On the one hand, that's very obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But things like things like that are always more effective when someone speaks another language and they're struggling to get a point right. out and then they make that point and you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. well, I totally uh, agree with you. I think that, you know, every effort does matter. And, of course, I'm sure we're both in agreement that a kind of reactionary nihilism is basically just a weakness. I'm not going to mention the person, but there's someone that that you and I both know, and he used to go on and on about this injustice and that injustice. But, um, you know, his girlfriend went vegan, and he was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I want to enjoy my life. <laughs> and um, when we found a wallet with money in it, and I was trying to figure out where to take the wallet, he was kind of hinting at, well, maybe we should just keep it and split the money. You know, and I found a lot of people who really ramble on and on about global injustice. (laughs) Yeah, there was another guy. I mean, you know, I used to do these cleanouts. I would do estimates for removal of recyclable materials, but also, you know, just estimates how many dumpsters or what size dumpster would you need just to clean out this facility or this home. And this this woman was absolutely adamant there's a chandelier there don't touch the chandelier and you know i was adamant with the guys and one of the guys who was cleaning the place out is like oh there's so much injustice in the world look at what they did to iraq (laughs) there's people profiteering from war there's so much corruption city officials you know like the rot is so deep and he stole the chandelier you know there's no question about (laughs) it and she's like i saw him you know (laughs) and last time i saw him (laughs) it's like not. it's not like he threw the chandelier in the dumpster because he didn't understand what he was told he was like no i was yelling at him and he was putting the chandelier in a van and the van drove away (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I mean, I just like I have an, another perfect example of that. I mean, there was this guy that I was talking to and, you know, he was going on about what you were talking about, like global injustice and how people have destroyed the earth. I said, dude, you work for a fucking oil company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's something about the the storm of evil and chaos and just garbage that, you know, sometimes people do say, well, who cares? Or how can I present myself as being opposed to this when I'm really just looking for a way to get to the trough to gorge myself? Yeah. That's why I feel like it's so important that it starts with your choices. I mean, what you eat, how you satisfy yourself. You see some animal being tortured. Is some flavor really worth that? Saying like, oh, but I just, I love the flavor. Right. I mean, it's really crazy if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. You can obviously compare yourself favorably to some sort of weird, pathetic sex criminal. <laughs> Right. But that's something that you don't really want to do. So you're like, oh, my God, that's so. But that person's wiring is such that they actually got some pleasure out of it. So like every person should actually be asking themselves, what's something that you've been somehow wired by this society to get some pleasure out of Uh that's actually evil? Right. And to me being conditioned to enjoy eating the flesh of animals is an example of that. Right. You know, I absolutely do condemn people who are involved in human trafficking. I, I absolutely do condemn pedophilia. Yeah. 100%. But it's also not a temptation for me. So there's not that much of a like, well, I never did this <laughs> to a child. I never desired to do that to a right. child. We need to look at what we're actually tempted to do. Right. On the other hand, I guess you could say, it's not just a a sort of culturally inculcated habit, but, you know, a kind of species habit over hundreds of thousands or millions of years. And those sorts of deep ingrained habits they're insidious. I mean, people die all the time from their habits. Right. I mean, this is part of Gadamer. The idea that history doesn't belong to us as much as we belong to history. Mm. And a lot of that is just the, you know, conditioned nightmare, (laughs) you know, that's true. Eating animal flesh, it's a, a long legacy. But, you know, I mentioned sex crimes. So are sex crimes. Rape is as old as anything else. Older. Rape has a long, long tradition. Rape and war. Right. Right. And and even in some cultures today, it's actually sophisticated in terms of as in terms of as a ritual. Yeah. yeah you know, absolutely. and bullfighting, bullfighting goes back a very long time. You know, you, you can go back and you can see cultures where kind of somehow engaging the uh, with a bull is a test of one's strength. You know, but I think we've talked on another podcast about, I think it's the Maasai tribe. Killing a lion was a way of showing that you've attained manhood or that you are a warrior or whatever. But some of them are lion protectors now. Mm, Yeah. They took that impulse to engage with this creature and redirected it in actually a healthier way. Because animals seem to have a desire to commune with human beings. 
when, if human beings treat them right, if they treat them well. I'm not going to pull some kind of Gary Yurofsky thing on you and say that, well, if we all became vegan, there wouldn't be racism anymore. There wouldn't be, you know, like that's the <laughs> first hatred. Maybe that's true, but I, I don't have any particular reason to believe that's true. That's just an assertion. Right. But it's something that we can we actually can do. Yeah. I'm sure there are other things that we can do that I haven't really researched it and tackled with it in terms of organization. Right. You know, it's kind of funny. You see people who are successful as artists in one way or the other, and they get more involved in activism. And sometimes they really do good. But part of what allows that is they have more time. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, really just treading water in the workaday world. Right. You know, so it is this whole system. And this is where I think Zizek is right, as far as all these ways that we're tempted to be consumers in such a way that, that we say we're, we're oh, that, that'll, that'll help change the system. Right. Like every time I buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks or something, they give five cents to help needy children or something without grappling with the system. So, I mean, the, this, this system does not work. And if the system does not change, I'm not sure that th there's, there's much of a future for humanity on this planet. And I also don't even know if there's life on any other planets. <laughs> right. If you run probability, it would seem that there would be, but then there are all these parameters that need to come into consideration. For all we know, this is the only planet that has life on it. Yeah, it could be. We ended up somehow being the dominant species. Right. Right? And in a lot of ways, we're actually the most pathetic. <laughs> One of the reasons rhinoceros, different species of rhinoceros are being hunted to extinction is really because of some sort of penis medicine. Yeah. That I'm sure doesn't even work. Right. You know, it's a combination of issues about male virility and being a fool. Right. A superstitious idiot. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think about, there was a time quite a while back when uh, we were both interested in the Gaia hypothesis. There's so much interesting stuff in that research, but there was also this incredible layer of misanthropy. I don't remember the exact quote, but to paraphrase in one of those books, it said, imagine what kinds of amazing creatures the earth would produce if we weren't here to get in the way of it. Right, you're sounding like, what was it, 12 Monkeys? <laughs> Is that the film? Yeah, I think it might be, yeah. As far as we know, we're the only thing that's going on in the universe. When you say we, you mean inhabitants of Earth? Right. I'm not too positive <laughs> on the idea of just sort of doing away with that in any sense. And what all of this comes down to is that because of our consciousness, I mean, you know, whatever that means, we're sort of different from the other creatures on the planet as far as we can tell. I mean, you know, the, the simplest example, of course, is, you know, the lion that eats the lamb. And do we right. call the lion evil? But for human behavior, we, we do call it evil because we have not only consciousness, but this sense of good and evil. And we have the potential to go either way with it. And in order to include all 
of life on the planet in the ethical scope of humanity and in the, the sense that I was just talking about of this place seems to be the only one in the universe where there's something going on to bring all of the creatures of Earth in, into that sort of categorization. We have a responsibility. And that is, of course, what is meant by being stewards, as we talked about earlier. And veganism is a way of pushing humanity's potential into a space of greater good. I think that's pretty much the way that I see things. Yeah, it's true that when a lion kills an animal and eats it, we don't consider it murder. But it's also, that's actually what lions are supposed to do. And we are morally responsible. And the thing about animals is that animals that are predators, they keep the prey population healthy because they kill the weak, they kill the slow, they keep the population from getting too high, which keeps the ecosystem in balance. When human beings consume animal products, we incarcerate animals and torture them for their entire existence. We forcefully impregnate them. We steal their offspring from them. We squeeze every drop of milk out of them, even if we just end up dumping the milk out somewhere. Yeah. And in addition, when it comes to hunting, while there are tribes that still hunt and there are people who live in climates and have traditions where hunting is an integral part of their culture and how they survive, we are also the only creature that hunts the best, not the weak, not the slow, but through a quest for status, the most beautiful, the most majestic. So we can put the head of the animal on a wall or use the hands of a gorilla for an ashtray. So it's true what you say about how we hold humans to moral standards because we see this ethical dimension to human life that we don't necessarily see animals having a commitment to. But then that goes with Zizek's point about Kant's idea of the inhuman as being a dimension of the human, because we are actually the biggest monsters. Using the royal we is problematic at times, but the biggest monsters you will find are human beings. I think we basically agree, but also being vegan really isn't enough. I want to say that it's a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition. But I can also concede that there are other necessary conditions, and someone else might be meeting that necessary condition that I'm not meeting. So I'm willing to concede that. And I definitely think you should really think strategically about how you disseminate these ideas because the only real success is to convert people and make them extricate themselves as much as they can from this system of exploitation and cruelty. So do you want to just try to wing the outro and see what happens? Yeah, I think winging the outro is a good idea. We could say, if we were going to record an outro, then maybe we should say this and that. Yeah, like, you've been listening to Phenomenumina with co-hosts Ray, I am he. And Gino. Yeah, well, we could do it like that. 
Yeah, and then we could direct them to all the places where the podcast would be found. Spotify, iTunes, wherever they are. And, you know, check out our webpage, phenomenumina.com. What about using this? Can we use this? Yeah, I think maybe we should use this.